0: Want flexibility? Take yoga. Want flexibility with your health insurance? Check out United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly medical, dental, and vision coverage that may be right for you. More at uh1.com. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving all of in June.
1: Hello and welcome, history friends, patrons all, to episode 45 of the Korean War. Last time we looked at the torrid negotiations, which followed the agreement by both sides to sit down and talk about peace. From the 10th of July 1951 to the 27th of July 1953, these talks would continue, and in that two-year span of time, Korea would descend from a strategically important conflict, to a political bargaining chip, to a political talking point to a topic which many people wished would just go away. Korean weariness was already making itself felt by the time the Allies sat down to talk with Nam Il's delegation at Kaesong on the 10th of July 1951. But for the next 24 months, this weariness would only increase, reaching its apex at the time of the critical political junction in the United States, the 1952 presidential election. On that occasion, it was Dwight D. Eisenhower, Ike, who had given up his command of NATO's forces in April of 1952 that acquired the Republican ticket. While Eisenhower's campaign did not revolve around Korea, it was one of the so-called four C's of his campaign, which referred to corruption, crime, communism, and... Korea? Clever, isn't it? Well, whether Ike knew how to fix the Korean problem or not, he did manage to make one thing very clear. On the 24th of October 1952, Eisenhower said those now famous words, I shall go to Korea. Indeed, he may well take a month-long vacation in Korea, but none of that would matter if he had no fresh ideas about how to actually bring the war to an end. With the stubbornness of both sides crystallizing in spring 1952 over the sensitive issue of the return of prisoners of war, Eisenhower would have his work cut out for him if he hoped to fulfill his campaign promises. Let's see how he tried to bring this about, then, as I take you to the 24th of October, 1952. The Song of the Week this week is brought to you by 1956. If you simply do not have enough history podcasting from Zach Twomley in your life, make sure you go over to patreon.com forward slash when diplomacy fails And for $5 a month, you can access an hour of extra history content every month, which basically translates into two extra episodes every single month. I know things are getting a bit crazy here when diplomacy fails. We're spewing out the Korean War like there's no tomorrow. And when it comes to the Versailles Anniversary Project, we'll be spewing that out as well. But if you are someone who likes to travel, who likes to listen to their history podcasts all the time... Or maybe you're also someone who just wants to support this podcast monetarily and not avail of any of the perks that come with that support. There are people out there that do that, believe it or not, and some people do it on a very, very high and very generous level, and I am very much indebted to them. Quite literally, in fact. However, you should know that at the moment, if you want to break from the Korean War, or even if you want to take a step away from the Versailles Anniversary Project and come to that later on, you should know we are looking at the Suez Crisis, that... Epic event in 1956, which contained so many different things it's almost impossible to boil it down. So I'm not gonna try. What I will say is look up the Suez Crisis on Wikipedia or any other highly respected sites, and once you do, you'll be able to see exactly what you're in for. Otherwise, you can listen to the first two episodes of 1956, part two, which are available for free, of course, in the Wendy podcast feed. If you were to sign up, you would be joining the legions of history friends who have signed up on the back of the Suez Crisis. And hopefully, these history friends will be with us for some time into the future because they can already access the Jan Sobieski biography, the first part of 1956, and of course, they will be able to access The Age of Bismarck when that also comes out. It's a great time to invest in When Diplomacy Fails and it's a great time to be a history friend with all the stuff we have coming up. I can't thank you guys enough for all the support you've given me And I hope to see you guys over at patreon.com forward slash when diplomacy fails. Otherwise, make sure to be fit and tell someone about this podcast because it is absolutely free. Alrighty guys, let's get into this episode by looking at the song of the week. And the song of the week this week is, it's something a bit interesting. It's I Like Ike, which was one of many of Eisenhower's campaign songs that he had unleashed upon the world. And thankfully, someone decided to store it in the archives so that people like me, 60-odd years later could go and track it down and marvel at it. You really will enjoy this, guys. I think that sometimes these campaign songs are like no other songs that you come across in the archives. So, here we go. Enjoy it. I like Ike. No idea who it's by, but it was released in 1952. Oh boy, this is a good one. If you're wondering why Eisenhower was called Ike, Story's a little bit weird. He was called Little Ike, and his brother was called Big Ike. The reason why they were called Ike was because Ike was short for Eisenhower, but Ike is actually also short for Isaac, so it's a bit confusing. And during Eisenhower's tenure as president, Isaac became a very popular name. I, in fact, like the name Isaac, so maybe I'll follow their lead. Anyway, now, that that doesn't mean my wife is pregnant. Oh God, she's going to kill me. Anyway, never mind. I didn't say anything. Isaac is a nice name, and... This song is pretty good too. So have a listen to it and we'll be right back afterwards for episode 45 of the Korean War. Oh, dear.
0: I like Ike. I've shouted over a mic. Or a cone. Or from the highest people. Yes, I like Ike. And Ike is easy to like. Stands alone. The choice of we the people. A leader we can call. Without political noise. He will lead us all As he led the boys So let's take Mike A man that all of us like Makes no deals His favor can't be curried
1: And Uncle Joe Is worried
0: Cause we like Mike
1: It was far from the first or last time that a slogan so associated with an individual was actually the brainchild of someone else. Eisenhower was pressed on several occasions once he became the Republican nominee to clarify his position on Korea and to make his strategy for dealing with that conflict clear. Even while Truman had ruled himself out of running again in late March 1952, The incumbent president couldn't be seen to allow an opposition president to just glide into that office unchallenged. When Eisenhower had unwisely claimed that Washington had committed a serious error in 1949 by withdrawing its soldiers from South Korea, in spite of menacing signs from the North, he seemed to forget that he had been part of an advisory body which had recommended in 1947 that there was little strategic interest in maintaining a military presence in Korea. Thankfully for Eisenhower... His staff was on the case. Eisenhower's iconic phrase was coined over the space of an informal dinner between Eisenhower's speechwriter, a former Life magazine editor named Emmett John Hughes, and Herbert Brownwell, his election campaign manager. The aim in the course of the discussion between the two men was to develop a phrase which would signify a strong commitment to Korea without actually committing Eisenhower to anything. Politics 101. For example, a straight-up boast to fix the Korean crisis wouldn't do. Back at a stage in American politics and world politics in general, where politicians and candidates attempted to only say what they meant or what they believed was possible, what a concept, these two men arrived at the perfect formula. What if Eisenhower declared his intention to go to Korea? A journey to that weary quagmire would signal his seriousness about the Korean issue and his intention to do something concrete about it it would also distinguish him from Truman, who had never actually been there. While it was inferred that Eisenhower would, by travelling there, find some kind of solution to the Korean War, it was not stated, if Eisenhower went and achieved nothing, then nothing would have been lost. Considering the iconic effect it would have on his election campaign and legacy, it may surprise us to learn that Eisenhower was quite sceptical about the idea when the two men first proposed it to him, even when he was told that it had been distilled into the immensely marketable phrase... I shall go to Korea, Eisenhower was still not completely convinced. Still, after something of a personal campaign of persuasion by several of his staff, he said he would roll with it. Eisenhower's speech on the 24th of October in Detroit's Masonic Temple was not the first time the candidate had spoken on Korea, but it was the first time he had come to the podium with such a well-rounded argument and such a catchy slogan. Before he reached the famous part of his speech, Eisenhower had to set up the groundwork first. Bringing out all the usual critiques of the current administration's policies, Eisenhower said, There is a Korean War, and we are fighting it, for the simplest of reasons, because free leadership failed to check and turn back communist ambition before it savagely attacked us. The Korean War, more perhaps than any war in history, simply and swiftly followed the collapse of our political defences. There is no other reason for this we failed to read and to outwit the totalitarian mind. I know something of this totalitarian mind. Through the years of World War II, I carried a heavy burden of decision in the free world's crusade against the tyranny, then threatening us all. Month after month, year after year, I had to search out and to weigh the strengths and the weaknesses of an enemy driven by lust to rule the great globe itself. It was only near the tail end of his speech that Eisenhower reached that phrase. Now, where will the new administration begin? It will begin with its president taking a firm, simple resolution. That resolution will be to forego the diversions of politics and to concentrate on the job of ending the Korean War until that job is honourably done. That job requires a personal trip to Korea. Only in that way could I best learn how to serve the American people in the cause of peace. I shall go to Korea that is my second pledge to the american people but that wasn't where the speech ended eisenhower had fought several battles against the different ideological branches of the republican party during his campaign for the candidacy to conclude his speech eisenhower referred to such dramas as well as the traditional differences between republicans and democrats now eisenhower reasoned such differences no longer held such weight it was impossible for isolationists to have their day in the sun any more because as eisenhower concluded The vast majority of Americans, of both parties, know that to keep their own nation free, they bear a majestic responsibility for freedom throughout the world. Today, the choice, the real choice, lies between politics that assume that responsibility with sure purpose and firm will. The choice is between foresight and blindness, between doing and apologising, between planning and improvising. In rendering your verdict, the people must judge with courage and with wisdom, for at this date... Any faltering in America's leadership is a capital offence against freedom. In this trial, my testimony of a personal kind is quite simple. A soldier all my life, I have enlisted in the greatest cause of my life, the cause of peace. How do we measure such a speech in the context of the Korean War? The historian Martin J. Medhurst, in his article Examining Ike's Speech, noted on its importance of the speech as a symbol of Eisenhower's effort to present himself as a somewhat independent candidate, free of political prejudice, and motivated above all by the pressing need to end the Korean War. Medhurst wrote, The pledge to go to Korea functions rhetorically as the first piece of supporting evidence for the oath that Ike swears to forego the diversions of politics and to concentrate on the job of ending the Korean War. It is powerful evidence of his intent to end the war, even though there is no plan, no promise, or program beyond an inspection tour. That such a pledge could evoke so powerful a response from the American people is an indication not merely of the artistry of the text, but also of the power of context to shape audience experience, understanding, and decision-making. Two weeks later, Dwight D. Eisenhower would be elected as the 34th President of the United States, by nearly 34 million votes, to just over 27 million. Not wasting any time on the 29th of November 1952, Eisenhower then travelled to the Korean War Zone, under conditions of deep secrecy, to spend three days in the country. He visited a mobile army surgical hospital and talked to a wounded man. He moved with an earshot of the incessant artillery duelling in the forward area, and he even spent an hour with an increasingly bitter and insufferable Singman Rhee. He talked with General James Van Fleet, the commander of the 8th Army. He held a press conference wherein he said he accepted the difficulties presented by the current military stasis, but he insisted that the United States will see it through. He then flew home to New York. Before long, he was plain to both Van Fleet and to the new commander of Allied forces in Korea, after Matthew Ridgway had flown to Europe to take Eisenhower's old position, that Eisenhower's move had been little more than a political gesture. He had been seen to go to Korea, but there would be no lengthy conferences with the military men to devise the best means for a new offensive or for a way around the deadlock. This was because that Eisenhower already knew that the end goal was an armistice, and he believed that the question of the day was not necessarily what to do in Korea, but how to get the Chinese to agree to cease. sense. Perhaps hoping for some kind of insight, Eisenhower met with an old hand in Korea, and at one point, his political rival for the Republican candidacy, Douglas MacArthur. It was a meeting arranged by John Foster Dulles, Eisenhower's foreign policy adviser, and the man who would take over from Dean Acheson in January 1953. The two generals met face-to-face on the 17th of December 1952. MacArthur presented Eisenhower with a lengthy memo, complete with all the naive nuggets of advice which had led to his dismissal 18 months before. It was clear, from MacArthur's advice, that he had learned nothing. His advice is worth reciting to demonstrate its folly, though. MacArthur said that the United States should demand the unification of Korea and Germany from the Soviet Union to be guaranteed by the two superpowers. If Moscow disagreed, then MacArthur advised, It would be our intention to clear North Korea of enemy forces. This could be accomplished through the atomic bombing of several military concentrations and installations in North Korea, and the sowing of fields of suitable radioactive materials, the byproduct of atomic manufacture, to close major lines of enemy supply and communications leading south from the Yalu, with simultaneous landings on both coasts of Korea. If Eisenhower was horrified at this, then he didn't show it. General, he began carefully, this is something of a new thing, I'll have to look at the understanding between ourselves and our allies on the prosecution of the war, because If we're going to bomb bases on the other side of the Yalu, if we're going to extend the war, we have to make sure we're not offending the whole free world or breaking faith. If he had been vague on what he would actually do in Korea, something which had popped up quite regularly in the months before the election was the idea of Koreanization, to develop and invest in the Republic of Korea army to the point that it could fend for itself on the peninsula, thus enabling the United States and the UN allies to return home. This plank of the new administration's Korea policy was implemented from January 1953 and at a cost of $1 billion a year. By using this money, the South Korean army would be increased to 655,000 men. Much like its equivalent in Vietnam several years later, Koreanization suffered from the defects that the Republic of Korea fighting men were simply not up to the same standard as their UN allies or their Chinese enemies. Unlike Vietnamization, though, the United States would not see this policy receive a military testing because it was implemented too late in the war. If making Koreans fight the war themselves was one plank of his policy for ending the war and bringing the boys home, another was that idea we'll talk about here and examine in more detail in the next episode. The notion of developing one's nuclear capabilities to make some use of atomic diplomacy. In January 1953, the United States had managed to create their first tactical nuclear weapon, which could be fired from an artillery piece. If they wanted to, the United States could now bombard the area of no man's land, as MacArthur's terrible plans had once stipulated. In March that same year, 1953 that is, the Joint Chiefs of Staff, under this fresh administration, now made plain their views on how to break the deadlock and end the war, recognising at the same time the important role which atomic weapons... Could play in the situation, their study said. The efficacy of atomic weapons in achieving greater results at less cost or effort in furtherance of the United States objectives in connection with Korea points to desirability of reevaluating the policy which now restricts the use of atomic weapons in the Far East, in view of the extensive implications of developing an effective conventional capability in the Far East. The timely use of atomic weapons should be considered against military targets affecting operations in Korea and operationally planned as an adjunct to any possible military course of action involving direct action against communist China and Manchuria. On the 19th of May, the Joint Chiefs then recommended that direct air and naval operations begin suddenly against the Chinese, including the use of nuclear weaponry. There would be no gradual escalation, but a sudden, rapid and devastating attack guaranteed to achieve surprise. On the 20th of May, the National Security Council approved this recommendation. Had Eisenhower's administration just approved the use of nuclear weapons for use against the Chinese? In subsequent debates on the war, much would be made of the idea that the United States came this close at times to pressing the big red button and just nuking the Chinese. Yet, while the evidence here seems to point towards a gradual escalation of opinion, it's just as easy to see these moves as window dressing for the true objective, a diplomatic approach. At this moment, John Foster Dulles, now installed in Dean Acheson's old seat as Secretary of State, was visiting India. Speaking with Prime Minister Nehru, Dulles knew that whatever he said would be communicated directly to the Chinese, and he made sure to tell Nehru, to inform Zhou Enlai, of how serious the United States now was in this new administration to make use of force. Where Truman had been unwilling, Dulles can now argue that the US Army was equipped with nuclear artillery shells, and that its 7th Fleet would no longer sit in the Taiwan Straits, with the implication being that Chiang Kai-shek, alongside covert support, could begin undermining Zedong's regime. Assaults on all these fronts accompanied by the dramatic escalation in the stakes and tempo in the war represented, in the opinion of the historian Thomas J. Christensen, who analysed the telegrams being sent between Mao and Stalin, as the end game for Mao Zedong. Christensen wrote that, Mao's greatest fear was a combination of a deadlocked war of attrition and American strategic bombing of China, when Mao accepted the first reality in the spring of 1951, MacArthur was being publicly criticised by the Truman administration for threatening to bring the war to China. Since MacArthur's dismissal may have signalled that Truman had no intention of escalation, Mao may have believed he could risk trying attritional tactics to outlast the Americans. But when Eisenhower came into office, the threat of retaliatory strikes against the mainland was more real, and Mao may have then considered the value of compromise. Although we have little similarly detailed Chinese documentation from 1933, This would certainly be a plausible deduction from the available evidence. Essentially, Christensen argued here that Mao had attempted to call the bluff of the Allies for the last year and a half by stalling and defending the front lines where possible in order to drain the Allied resources and increase the pressure to make peace on the national governments. He had felt able to do this when it seemed unlikely that the Allies would strike at Chinese targets or escalate the war. Since Mao was just as undesiring of a transformation of the Korean War into a full-blown Sino-American conflict, he was always listening for any bulletins that might suggest that the war was entering a dangerous new phase. The question, of course, was whether Mao would ever believe the equivalent of American chest puffing, which Dulles, Eisenhower and the different departments were now engaged in. It seems likely that the new president believed Mao would capitulate if he believed that Washington was gearing up for a massive attack. The act of making Mao believe that the United States wanted an escalation of the war was an exercise made easier by the fact that Eisenhower's was a new administration and could reasonably be presented as determined to pursue a new course. In addition, in an argument which Mao would have well understood, Eisenhower's public pronouncements and his genuine intentions to use nuclear weapons could be rationalized in Beijing as the new president's attempt to curry favor with the American people and to be taken seriously in the world. I believe that considering Eisenhower's preconceived notions on the use of nuclear weapons, his concern for preserving the lives of Allied soldiers, and the opportunities which he saw to be exploited in his fresh administration all count towards the argument which states that Eisenhower was bluffing. Indeed, one of the most convincing pieces of evidence which points in this direction was that diplomatic angle that Dulles happened to pursue through the Indians. What a coincidence that just as Eisenhower's administration was becoming increasingly bombastic and threatening, the Secretary of State was visiting the only nation on earth that the Chinese and Americans had communicated through in the past. If a sudden direct strike had been the objective all along, then this supposedly last-minute conversation with Prime Minister Nehru would not have taken place. The point is that it was far easier to frame a new policy approach by a new administration, and now that the United States was armed with the capabilities to strike, as Moscow and Beijing had been informed through numerous covert channels that they were, the bluff was easier to support. Yet it wasn't only through its nuclear capabilities that the United States had been strengthened. In late 1950, the United States had been far less militarily powerful, but by spring 1953, the aftershocks of the defence budget ballooning in size had been felt. Washington seemed to feel less threatened by the Soviets after having reached a peak high of military production by this point. For the remainder of this episode, I'll give my views in support of this idea, the traditional, conventional idea, which states that nuclear diplomacy and deterrence played a dominant role in bringing the communists to the bargaining table through spring to summer 1953. To a large extent, I agree with the idea that Washington's coercive diplomacy was more effective because of its preceding rearmament program, which we have of course looked at, and is tied up in NSC-68 and is pretty much the reason why we're here. I also believe it's impossible to ignore the behavior of the Eisenhower administration or of its pronouncements which pointed towards the use of nuclear weapons. At the same time though, and I will elaborate on this in the next two episodes, it is important not to make straight lines out of messy journeys. Eisenhower's arrival at an armistice and the use of coercive diplomacy to reach that destination could not have been made possible without the after-effects of NSC-68. Yet, if it is argued by other historians that, contrary to popular belief, Eisenhower's coercive nuclear diplomacy was not all that effective after all, then this does not disprove the importance of NSC-68 at the same time. In other words, it's possible to separate the bombastic nuclear diplomacy from the improvements in American security and defense which NSC-68 helped bring about. The United States had the rest of the Cold War to make use of the implications of containment which Truman had set in motion. Although the boot fits quite well, we'll see over the next few episodes that the traditional nuclear deterrent idea wasn't a perfect fit and that other forces were at work which brought the two sides to the armistice in the end, But let's examine what we have so far in any case. The reports on American military production were not declared outright. Historians note that they were instead disseminated through policy reports containing immense detail and placed in certain spheres where it was known that journalists and perhaps even foreign agents could acquire knowledge of their details. Evidence of planning was certainly a tactic used in the past by American governments. It had been used extensively during the Second World War to fool the Nazis. A keen military man, don't forget, Eisenhower may have been operating with Sun Tzu's All War is Deception piece in his mind, and it is easy to forget that the Korean War, even if it was not the total war that the Second World War had been, was still a conflict that the United States and its president had to fight. No American administration had ever been in such a great position to bluff and puff out its chest. Preparations on these scale made the Communists nervous, and even while suspicions regarding Washington holding back the full extent of its arsenal would always be there, the new administration and its increasingly bombastic rhetoric posed a new threat to the old assumptions. What, if not an escalation of the conflict, was the United States preparing for with all these massive military capabilities? Indeed, the crumbs had been left everywhere for the Communists to find, and they feed into the idea that such a policy had been building ever since the implementation of NSC 68 in spring 1950. This slow-burning policy required great investment and a huge PR campaign, both within and without the two houses, to persuade public and political opinion of the need to arm, and it was preferable to make these actions as visible as possible to drive the point home. In a February 1953 meeting of the National Security Council, John Foster Dulles had spoken of the need to make the use of nuclear weapons more socially and publicly acceptable to America's allies. According to the minutes of that meeting, John Foster Dulles discussed the moral program and the inhibition on the use of the atomic bomb and Soviet success to date in setting atomic weapons apart from all other weapons as being in a special category. It was his opinion that we should try break down this distinction. Adding to this note was the missive which stated that North Korea provided a good target for this type of weapon. The crumbs were allowed to pile up further as another National Security Council meeting recorded how Eisenhower and Dulles were in complete agreement that somehow or other the taboo which surrounds the use of nuclear weapons would have to be destroyed, to which Eisenhower added that although There were not many good tactical targets he felt it would be worth the cost if such a strike was to bring about victory in Korea. In his book on the Korean War, Max Hastings provides, in my opinion, the most realistic analysis of the behaviour undertaken by the Eisenhower administration while he neglects to fully elaborate on why this new policy was so successful. It wasn't just because Ike was the new guy on the block who, in the communist worldview, was expected to have to prove himself, This aspect of the situation helped the new president's case, but it did not guarantee its success. Instead, it was fundamentally because in spring 1953, Eisenhower had the tools, whereas Truman in spring 1950 did not, and this was why he was taken so seriously. As Hastings wrote, Today, it remains difficult to believe that, had the military situation in Korea remained unchanged, Eisenhower would have authorized their deployment that is, the deployment of nuclear weapons. He was a cautious, humane man. It seems unlikely that he would have taken such a step. But in the spring of 1953, the Russians and Chinese almost certainly allowed themselves to be persuaded that the new administration was willing to use nuclear weapons if the United States was denied an honourable escape from Korea. After so many months of deadlock, the talks suddenly began to move with remarkable speed. Without the decision to rearm, Hastings states here, Eisenhower's newly aggressive approach to the Korean War would never have so spooked the communists and would never have appeared so convincing. It was a lot easier for one's opponent to believe that you intended to use your big stick when you had so many more where that came from and you had been collecting sticks for some time. In the next two episodes, we will assess this version of the argument in the context of nuclear diplomacy to see if the United States really did threaten the communists with nuclear Armageddon to bring the Korean War to an end, and if the communists genuinely bowed to this pressure, as Hastings, John Foster Dulles himself, and many other people attest. For the remainder of this episode, though, we will ask an important question, which adds to this debate. Namely, what role did the Indians play as the middleman for communicating John Foster Dulles apocalyptic message to the Chinese in bringing the Korean War to an armistice? From February 1952 to July 1953, the major issue which delayed and frustrated efforts to advance the peace talks was the subject of the prisoners of war which both sides had accumulated in the course of their offensives, losses, retreats and counter-offensives. In the constantly shifting nature of the Korean War's first phase, it was perhaps inevitable that so many prisoners would fall into the enemy's hands. The delicate question first became what to do with all these prisoners, then how to make political use of them, and then what way could we best get rid of them. Disputes took intense turns over the year and a half it took to settle the prisoner issue, largely because both sides wanted to have their cake and eat it too. The communists insisted that they had less prisoners than they actually did, while the Allies insisted that, Only those who wished to return home to communist countries should be made to do so, but Beijing demanded that all its men return home, whether they want to or not. This was the crux of the issue, and much like the military stalemate, the diplomatic stalemate need not detain us any further, considering the fact that affairs moved at such a snail's pace without much change in the situation for some time. Of course, to this it should be added that, like those fleeting offensives on the battlefield, There were times when certain actors attempted to progress the talks in the United Nations and outside of it. One of these powers, as we've come to discover, was the surprisingly active Indian delegation. It was Nehru's wish that the Korean War should be ended yesterday. Yet all his previous efforts at ending the conflict were consistently frustrated by the fractured nature of the UN General Assembly and by the persistent blocking underway by the Soviets in the UN Security Council. In October and November 1952, the Indian efforts were stepped up, ironically, out of concern that the new Eisenhower administration could potentially escalate the situation in Korea. Nehru's intense efforts gathered British and Canadian approval, and Nehru for a time began to see cooperation within the Commonwealth as the best way forward to bring the conflict to an end. It was vital that he acted for this small window of time when the regime change in the United States led to a momentary weakening of the American influence in the United Nations' apparatus. It was the prisoner issue that always seemed to delay proceedings, but it was while talking to their British and Canadian peers that one of the most important developments emerged, the idea of a repatriation committee for the return of prisoners of war. If such a committee could be developed by both sides, and if its sovereignty could be assured alongside its neutrality, then perhaps a major stumbling block to the negotiations would be removed. This had been an Indian proposal, and it is one of the fascinating aspects of the Korean War, as well as it's most forgotten, that this proposal, with some changes, ended up being a central plank of the eventual peace agreements organized the following summer. Thanks very much for that indeed, India. Initially, of course, the Indians would face great opposition from the Americans as well as the Communists. Dean Acheson, in his final acts as Secretary of State, was opposed to the peace overtures because to him they seemed too vague and went against the then solid plank of the administration which still sought to guarantee the desires of all enemy prisoners to return where they wished. I should clarify that several proposals I refer to as being in the UN General Assembly were often merely talked about and developed behind closed doors as the interested parties gauged how much support they could reasonably expect In late November 1952, though, Nehru approved the plan to actually propose the deal to the UN General Assembly as a draft resolution. This would force the Paris present to debate on it, and Acheson knew that since he couldn't agree to it, it would very likely give the appearance of Washington voting apart not merely from its Indian, but also potentially its whole Commonwealth bloc of allies that the United States would traditionally have voted alongside. In the event, Acheson was saved the embarrassment when the Soviet delegate, surprise, surprise, criticised it for him, signalling the fact that the communists would oppose it, even if Washington didn't. Acheson then cynically adopted the old strategy of siding with his Indian ally in the expectation that since it would fail either way, so he may as well show his public approval of it. Nehru was disappointed at this failure, and he considered abandoning the proposal altogether, but to his surprise, it did pass and the American ambassador on Acheson's instruction also publicly supported it since what else was he going to do? After the vote went through on the 2nd of December 1952, Acheson conformed to the view that it was more important to stick with America's allies even if this resolution didn't gel with American policy. Dean Acheson, on the way out of the State Department by this point, he would be out of his job in about a month, held another erroneous belief close to heart that even though the resolution passed, it wouldn't have a great impact on the peace negotiations as they developed. Subsequent events would prove the value of the Indian Prisoners' Proposal, and the importance of this vote in the General Assembly. With the approval of the United Nations tacitly given, India's proposal would in fact become a critical pillar of the Armistice negotiations. As Nehru knew well, though, there was still a difficult road ahead before peace could be made. What happened next is still up for debate. Some historians claim that it was the genuine force of America's increasingly belligerent foreign policy, backed up by its armaments, which forced the pace of negotiations from late March 1953, when Kim Il-sung announced his desire for a settlement which would provide a solution to the prisoners of war question, as well as a ceasefire for which people throughout the world are longing, as he put it. Joe Enlai endorsed this view shortly after in a radio broadcast from Beijing. Other historians note that the pressure on the communists to come around to a peace deal was brought by a combination of factors and that Eisenhower's armed belligerence was only one aspect of this pressure. Other more considerable aspects of the pressure were found in the general exhaustion of the combatants, the devastation of North Korea and Mao's urgent need to rebuild the country and repair his own economy after such a costly war. One critically important ingredient in the equation, though, and one which our own Patreon-exclusive series 1956 looks into in more detail, wink-wink-nudge-nudge, was the rather unexpected death of Joseph Stalin on the 5th of March, 1953. Even at that vile man's funeral, it was said that a so-called peace offensive would soon be underway. The signal was made loud and clear to Mao Zedong in this regard. With the Soviets determined to pursue a new post-Stalin foreign policy, Mao was now faced with two new regimes, both the Americans and the Russians, neither of which were entirely predictable, and both of whom had great potential to affect the Chinese war effort. The urgency which the new Soviet administration shifted and turned its efforts to both establish a true successor to Stalin and conclude his Korean adventure is striking. It also speaks to the theory that the Korean War was, in many respects, a Stalinist venture designed to bring advantages to the Soviet Union as Stalin, rather than Moscow as a whole, interpreted them. It also lends credence to the idea that Stalin's personal rule and control over foreign affairs was a great deal more total than historians may have assumed. Judging from the time it took the Soviets to announce their change of policy, and for their communist allies to follow suit at the end of the month, it was plain that Moscow was undergoing a shift in world policy. This shift would be more plainly and strikingly borne out in 1956, when a set of ruptures in the Soviet system occurred, but in the twilight phase of the Korean War, Stalin's immediate exit from the scene appeared to suggest that the jig was up, and that it was time to make some supreme effort to end the war. As is customary, I refused to choose a black or white option for why the communists appeared more eager than ever to end the Korean War from late March. Instead, I would argue that, like all things in history, the conclusion of the Korean War was brought about by a combination of messy factors, all interacting and fusing with one another. It certainly helped, of course, that war weariness was at an all-time high in the different states, and that, thanks to the Indian proposals, a way forward on the prisoner issue, now seemed possible. Even if Eisenhower's bluff campaign did not have the full impact on communist morale that Hastings claims, it still seems reasonable to deduce that it added to the bank of other concerns facing the Sino-Korean war effort. Washington of course regarded the Chinese overtures with great suspicion, but in time it would be discovered that the communists, much like the Allies, were willing at least to make some key compromises if it would bring this wretched conflict to a close. With Truman's administration gone and Stalin dead, Mao Zedong truly was the last man standing, just as he had been the odd man out where the outbreak and pursuit of the Korean War was concerned. Now it was up to Mao to shape the peace treaty for the communists, and the next episode will see how Mao Zedong, Kim Il sung, President Eisenhower, and so many other figures sought to deliver the death knell to the Korean War and honorably extricate themselves from the Cold War's first hot conflict. I hope you'll join me for that, history friends, but until then, my name is Zach, and this has been the Korean War, episode 45. Thanks for listening, and I'll be seeing you all soon.